Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I've been interviewing extraordinary people across all walks of life for the past 20 years as an unscripted television producer and before that as a small town sports reporter. Each episode, I talk to talented people from the worlds of documentaries, reality television, game shows, true crime, sports, and much more. If you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe, download, and rate the show with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Audible, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on No Script, No Problem, please contact Believe at Believe.com. All right, let's get started. Today, my guest is a fantastic executive producer and creative executive who was named one of Hollywood's new leaders by Variety in 2018. He is currently the co-president of Left Field Pictures. Prior to that, he was SVP of Current Series and executive producer at ITV America. Some of his executive producing credits include Alone, Forged in Fire, Tiny House Nation, Counting Cars, American Restoration, Brain Surgery Live, and Pawn Stars. And earlier in his career, this is what I, I love, I love this. My guest was an executive producer at MTV, specializing in the development and supervision of daily live studio productions. I'm talking about shows like Total Request Live, Pranked, and Parental Control, which is still one of my all-time favorites. Please welcome the co-president of Left Field Pictures, Sean Witt. Sean, how you doing, man? Good, man. How are you, Steve? I'm wonderful. I'm excited to chat with you. All right, so Left Field Pictures is a part of ITV America which is a part of ITV Studios, right? And then within all of that, you still have Sirens Media, you have Think Factory Media, you have High Noon Entertainment, you have Good Caper Content, you have all these different companies. How does it all work, man? <laughs> I don't even know where to start with that question. That was very broad. The, the best thing, and I'll start with this, the best thing about it is that all of us labels, whether it's Think Factory, High Noon, Left Field Pictures, we're all given the autonomy to run our brands um, however we'd like. We have tremendous back-of-house support from ITV America. Uh, Dave George, the CEO, has created a pretty great infrastructure there so that when we ideate and develop and sell shows, even though we're intimately involved in the production, we we can lean on that back-of-house. So ITV America provides the back-of-house, whether it's casting, business affairs, legal, um, you name it. Uh, production management, um, and they can help us execute those shows at a high level so we can still continue to develop other series and and, and get those out to market to other buyers. Uh, It's a pretty great setup, to be honest, because it allows you to be creative focused and partnership focused, but it takes a lot of the pressure off on the stuff that we as creatives really don't want to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Now, when you look across our landscape, right, and unscripted, that is kind of the trend with a lot of the companies, right? You have like Endemol Shine, right, with multiple companies like Authentic, you know, is underneath their umbrella as well as 51 Minds. And then you have Banerjee, which buys Endemol Shine. This was not the case when you and I were coming up, right? Why do you feel like this is the trend of like the big companies scooping up and buying, you know, kind of those smaller companies? And do you feel like, this is a good thing. I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but I think it has to do with IP ownership and diversification. I mean, Brent, if you go back to left field, when it was just left field, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, Brent Montgomery realized that left field was known for Pawn Stars. And the only way that he was going to have an opportunity to sell another series to a, a network that was not history was to bring in credible partners. And at the time he partnered with Sirens, the old Sirens, which was crime-based. Now Sirens under Miyoshi is more pop culture-based. But at, at the time he then started selling more crime shows. And then he did a partnership with Nick Rigg and Jody Flynn with their respective companies. And that diversification looks a lot better and, and more appealing in the marketplace because then you can do more than one thing. And look, a, a, every producer can do everything, but a buyer isn't necessarily going to believe you because they just want to, they want to go based on a track record. So I mean, there's a world where 
all, all the buy-ups and acquisitions and partnerships now, it's really no different. It's just on a larger scale. Everybody wants to represent every different bucket and you can't always do that with who you have in house. And, and like I, I started off with, if you're lucky, some of these companies own IP and, and formats travel in most cases. So it, I think that's an advantage as well, just to get your hands on those formats so you can try to sell them in mar other markets if you've not kind of already been screwed in your efforts to do that already. Diversification is huge. And you mentioned IP in there as well. One of the recent projects that was announced uh, through Left Field and ITV is a, a partnership with Blumhouse Television. Of course, that's Jason Blum's big, huge uh, production company, and he does those amazing horror films, right? Escape the Maze is the working title, which sounds incredible, self-shot, isolating, you know, emotionally charged competition uh, series with, with uh, you guys at, at Left Field. Tell me a little bit about the idea behind Escape the Maze, uh, which does sound like some, some great IP mixed with, you know, a partnership with somebody who's amazing like Jason. So the, the idea, before we even took it to Blumhouse to see if they'd be interested, you know, we were talking internally about, you know, with this, with this recent success of Alone, and it's been popular for years, but I think the pandemic and it popping up on Netflix in addition to history really helped give it a broader audience. And we were talking about how can you take the spirit of that show, which, which at the end of the day is more of a psychological show than it is a physical show, albeit hard for the participants. How can you take that vibe and that format, but skin it in a different way or put it through a different filter? And we started talking about, as you mentioned, the self-shot aspect, the, the psychological stuff. And we started throwing around a bunch of different uh, houses for that, you know, and, and we ended up talking about mazes. And it was interesting because I, I think Dave, George, Gretchen and I, when we when were talking about mazes, we're like, well, shit, yes, there have been maze type shows on, on more, more with kids skewing, broadcast skewing um, vibes, but nothing in the, the, the really dark space. So that when in the early conversations with Blumhouse, once that partnership was forged, they wanted to hear a bunch of ideas. And this was one of the ideas we threw their way and they immediately got really excited about it. And it wasn't just because they're fans of Alone. I think they saw what we saw in that, like the maze has stories to tell and Jason and his team are fantastic storytellers. Um, you know, they can, they can bring more than a game show to the screen, right? They, they can bring a psychological element, a story element. They can make it an immersive experience for the participants and the viewer at home in ways that, you know, we at Leftfield don't necessarily have the experience doing. And I think the, by our powers combined, what was that, Captain Planet? Um, I think <laughs> th this, this format was born and we're really excited about it. We, we haven't st started shopping it around yet. That'll happen in the upcoming weeks, but it, it's going to feel more than an escape room kind of show. It's going to be very immersive, um, very moving, not in an emotional sense, although that would be nice. Uh, moving, <laughs> maybe a lot of motion. Yeah. Uh, rooms changing, people thinking they're on airplanes when they're really not. A lot of really Ooh. cool devices that we've, we've come up with. Like I like it. I like it. Because, yeah, escape rooms were – there was a time where everyone was pitching the escape room show. This sounds way better. And any time you can add Jason, Jason Blum and his brand to the mix, that's exciting. I feel like right now in our world, packaging has become bigger than ever. IP has become bigger than ever. How do you feel like you know things have evolved in the packaging IP world? You have athletes now – like LeBron James and Kevin Durant and Michael Strahan, who all have their own production company. You know, Dwayne Wade is hosting The Cube. It feels like every celebrity is wants to be in our world in Unscripted. How does that play into uh, the idea behind, hey, we're not just going to take out a maze show. We want to partner with uh, someone like Jason. It's a really good question. And I think there was a time when a name mattered more than it does now. I think what buyers are particularly looking for is a contribution or expertise of some kind. So, you know, it, a celebrity EP isn't going to sell a show in the way that they may have a few years back, um, even a year or two back. I think when you have someone like Jason and the Blumhouse team, they bring an expertise, but they bring a vision and a POV that you're not going to find anywhere else. And that's valuable. So I think networks are willing to, 
not only take pitches, but pay for a premium when, when they know they're getting something out of it. If Jason was just putting his name on something, yes, that's a big name, but that's not why you want Jason. You want Jason and his team for everything, for their imagination and their ability to execute in a particular genre. So, I mean, if I'm a buyer, if that wasn't going to be offered, I don't know that I'd lean in, but knowing that it is, and it's exciting that it is, and it's not just this Escape the Maze project, it's it's any project, any, any project we take out that has a, let's call it a celebrity EP or attachment, we really, really, really always want to make sure that that's a meaningful contribution, whether it's on screen or behind camera, that the buyer and hopefully the viewer can see some sort of benefit from. I think just putting Sean Witt on something, if I was a celebrity, is kind of useless. You know what I mean? You're a celebrity. I consider you a celebrity. Don't sell yourself short. Get me out of here. (laughs) You say that uh, alone was was part of that genesis of the idea, the creative that went into Escape the Maze. I, I find that interesting, um, but I'm not surprised. You know, alone now, I see people are watching it on Netflix. It's just one of those shows that you're like, wow, you just got it right. Why, why does it work? Why do you feel like it's a hit and so many people have gravitated to it? Sure. So there, there are a handful of origin stories in the earliest development of Alone. And I'm not going to pick one um, because that's only going to make someone feel left out. Um, But I'll I'll say this, in the earliest stages, it was our goal and history's goal because they they were on board pretty much as soon as they heard the pitch. The earliest creative was Survival 365. So we wanted this to be a year-long survival experience, something that has never been done before we learned very quickly that that's kind of financially and logistically impossible to pull off. So it kind of got scaled back quite a bit in in the earliest stages of development. At the time, I was the head of current. Gretchen, my co-president, was the head of talent and casting. But with Gretchen's experience at Discovery and especially with male programming and, and my experience making shows, we were kind of thrown into the cauldron very early to figure it out. So many more things to say, but it's worth noting that the show never would have been what it became had history not trusted us from the get-go. I think there's a lot of pressure when you're doing a show like this, especially in a space like survival when so many other big formats preceded it. I mean, Survivor is not a true survival show, but that's what you think of when you think of the space. It's really hard to beat that bar. I can't remember if Naked and Afraid had just come out before we did or if it was around the same time, but that was such a big, loud format that for history to say to us as producers, do the minimalist version of a show where production value from a camera standpoint doesn't matter, where you're trusting non-TV people who've never been on camera in their lives to be your on-air talent, uh, for them to say that is was really bold and anything but risk-averse. So I, I credit them to this day. The show never would have been the alone that we all know today if they hadn't given us that clean slate to say, go make the show that you've always wanted to make. Look, it's a beast. I, I think People in the beginning really questioned whether it was legitimate. Are you really letting them out on their on their own? I mean, the answer is yes. You can read anywhere online. We've told the stories before. Of course, we come in on a seven to 10 day basis and swap out media cards and batteries. That's known. We do medical checks. We make sure they're psychologically sound. You know, when the, when our biggest concern when the show was developed was, is this safe? None of us wanted to make a show where the headline is ex-participant died or 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 was injured or whatever that's was never the show we wanted to make and we never wanted to push it that far so we're within minutes of these people if we need to be via chopper or you know 15 20 minutes via boat so if there is a true emergency we can tend to it appropriately but this is a real authentic survival experience and i think that's why not only viewers but the participants have embraced it it's it's really hard and you know, over the years, anyone who plays in this space knows it's very it's very hard to get individuals who spend a lot of time in the wilderness alone to want to do television. They don't trust it. They don't they don't look at a lot of the shows that have been on air in the past and say, oh, yeah, that's how I want to be portrayed or that's how I want my hobby or my passion to be portrayed. They're protective of that. And, and in a lot of ways, they're introverted people because they spend time in the woods. It's just, it makes sense. So what alone 
did such a great job at, from a casting standpoint, was having the producer back away and saying, you tell your own story and, and trust us to, to take all that footage and all that openness that you provide on camera uh, to make the best TV show possible. Not the show that we want to make from a story standpoint. We're not going to manipulate you in the field. We're not going to manip- manipulate in you in the edit. We just need you to talk and, and to document. We'll teach you how to do it. There were participants in the first boot camp. We have like a like an orientation boot camp process where we assess people's medical and psych and personality and, and ability to document themselves. And there were people who were garbage with cameras. They couldn't even figure out how to turn it on. But after a two week course, I would hire some of these people as camera ops on our shows. They've become that good and, and then that proficient with the equipment and also visual storytelling. In terms of the casting, these people have to, I mean, be available for an indeterminate amount of time. Yep. What is the key? Like, and you, I, I would assume you don't want them to be too, like, too good, right? You don't want, like, what is the key to casting alone? Because you want them to be able to survive. But yet, I, I would think you don't want them to be the most incredible survivalist where you're worried that they're just, they're absolutely going to win. What are you looking for when it comes to the casting? Really, really good question. We, and this is, I, I say this sincerely, we have never cast anyone on the show to fail. So we, we take the diligence very seriously on the show. We put people through an expensive boot camp process to weed out people who are trying to mislead us during the casting process. Yes, we want personalities and people who quote unquote make good television, but not at the expense of an injury or worse because there goes the show. So if, if we're putting anyone out there who can't really do this for at least a, a reasonable amount of time, they're not going to, they're not going to make it. The, the, the bar is very high in that regard. I will say, and this is a fun anecdote. There was an individual who auditioned for season one. Um, I can vividly remember that, that boot camp. He was so above and beyond talented compared to everyone else we brought that we in history identified right away that he without fail will win this show and make everyone look not foolish, but pretty bad. He was that skilled, that experienced, had decades and decades of doing exactly what we wanted this show to be. Um, As a result, we did not put him on the show, but immediately hired him to be our survival consultant. And he's been with us for seven years. So, and I think in a lot of ways, the bar for the participants has gone up every season because of his contribution. His name's Dave Holder. He deserves the the credit. He is one person who we really did think would win it. And we didn't want to, we didn't want to know that going in. We we wanted to be surprised. And the truth is, you know, every one of us has a hunch who we think will go the distance, but we're almost always wrong. You know, you you never know what, what psychological issues people are going to come up with, who's going to get sick, who's going to get injured. Um, but we really do want these people to succeed because that's what the show is about, right? It's it's about the participants. It's not about us as producers. And I, I know anyone listening to this who is one of us is going to roll their eyes and say, Sean, you just want, you want renewals. You want your shows to rate. <laughs> but but, but I, I sincerely said to the alone participants in season one who, who showed up to boot camp, who didn't trust television, had no idea there was a cash prize. Uh, they just came because they thought there was a chance this could be a good opportunity for them safely to attempt something they've always wanted, which is true isolated solo survival. And I said to them, yes, I'm a producer. You don't have to believe me. I don't give a shit if this show ever comes back. I don't give a shit if this show rates very well. The most important thing for me is to tell your stories and allow you to do this safely. And I said the same thing I just mentioned is I don't, one of you guys getting injured or worse is not a good headline for me. But what makes this show so special is that the producer is invisible. And yes, we are there. Um, you know, we're out in the wilderness at a at a centralized base camp that can access them for safety reasons. We're there. We edit the show. We process the media. We pick what selects we want to use. So in that sense, the producer is there. But even to the music selection, which we talked a lot about in the beginning of season one, we didn't want anything that made it feel like a producer had anything to do with it, which is even though I'm a drummer and it pains me to say this, I made the decision, no drums in the show. 
like let's not and I know if Ryan Pender hears this REP he's going to roll his eyes because I beat that note to death every single season and if I hear a drum I always call it out after it airs but when you hear drums you think survivor or you think a band or you think jingle punks or whatever and that feels produced so we really did make an effort to think about every detail of the show and how can you make it not feel produced when the crews show up to get someone who gets tapped out, we like to show it from the POV of the participant first and not the POV of the, the extraction team. Because again, that feels like the producer's doing it. And yes, we show that footage. There, there is producer and DP shot footage mixed in to the experience. I'm not denying that. Um, but it was really important for us to be invisible. And I, I hope we achieve that. Is there a scariest moment that will always stick out in your mind on Alone? Good question. Um, so I'll say the, this has nothing to do with danger per se, but one week into field production of our first season, I think five people tapped out and we, <laughs> we had to call history and say, hey, uh, we might not be able to deliver 10 episodes because we have half a cast and we're on day seven. Uh, and the expectation, mind you, was an open-ended show. You know, like they, they thought this could last anywhere from 80 to 100 days. And here I am on day seven saying you have half a cast. We're going to be hard-pressed to last another week. Granted, the, the, the other 50% of the cast lasted 40 more days and we were fine. But uh, th that's when I was the most afraid. So I think that will tell you that we've been pretty lucky in terms of participant danger on the show. That said, we, we've had a number of bear encounters that, you know, someone will call us and say, I have a bear in my camp. They will not go away. I'm not tapping out, but I need to let you know that there's a bear here in case you don't hear from me. Um, when stuff like that happens, we do often send boats out to, to go inspect the situation in case we have to intervene quickly. Stuff like that is scary, especially when you get those messages at three in the morning and you're out in the field and you're like, well, fuck, I have to get on a boat now and go deal with this. But we do it. There've been some injuries, you know, Donnie Dust participant, great example. Um, he was a heart attack survivor and we knew going into this via our, our medical evaluation and his own disclosure that he had a heart condition. And he started having chest pains that, that were reminiscent of what he experienced when he had a heart attack. And when you get that call, that's when you're like, oh shit, this is, this is beyond the show. Um, yes, his experience caused his condition, but that's when you worry because a lot of that shit's out of your hands. Like you can scare off a bear if you're, if you're there in time and so can the participant when it, but when it's a, a medical condition, like a heart attack or a stroke or anything like that, so that someone could potentially experience in the wilderness, that's the most scary thing. Cause you know, those are internal things. We're not in, in truth, we're never very close to a hospital. We're, we're close enough to hospitals that we can give people the care that they need in an emergency situation. But we're not driving 15 minutes to a hospital. We're flying 30 minutes to a hospital, that sort of situation. So that's when I'm most afraid. But knock on wood, we've been pretty fortunate in that regard. You can feel the danger. Like you guys, you, you guys do a good job of that. Thanks. Yeah. I want to switch gears. Counting cars, it's interesting. Like I find it so interesting whether, you know, every, every one of these car shows that comes out, I, I always watch and I go, I go, okay. How is it that the a new car show comes out, does a, a little bit of a, a, a new spin on it, and yet gets eyeballs? Counting Cars became the number one rated series premiere of all time for history and the number one nonfiction series premiere on cable in 2012. How do you as a developer go, okay, we're entering the car space how do we put a new spin on this and do something different when you have Motor Mondays on Discovery Channel and so many car shows out there? What made Counting Cars special? What makes that a hit? I mean, there's a, there's a few factors at play, and I can't take credit for identifying Danny Coker. He was an ancillary character on Pawn Star. So Rick Harrison knew Danny. Um, they were Las Vegas friends and locals. And as a result, the, the Pawn Stars team started to incorporate him into Pawn to, to redo cars for the guys, for the Pawn Stars guys. So, so that's kind of how Danny was, was found. I had nothing to do with finding Danny Coker, but he's an amazing talent. So the second thing is, you know, he, he has the charisma and personality 
of a, of a celebrity, he's born with that, right? So even if he was not on television, you meet Danny Coker and he is special in that regard. So I think right off the bat, he is a billboard. He surrounds himself with not only really skilled artisans, you know, Ryan and Shannon in, in the paint and bike shop and Corny Mike, who is just a character in himself. He has a mohawk and has horns and all this shit. So, you know, when you have people like that, it's a blessing because then your billboard is phenomenal with Danny in the lead and all these people. So it's difficult. It was difficult then, 10 years ago, to find standout memorable talent. It's nearly impossible now to find that kind of talent because it's all been mined. It's been mined over the past decade because those sorts of shows had worked so well. So, you know, we were, we were really blessed to have the people we did on camera. And to be honest, the, what made that stand out to me when I got involved, which, which when, again, I was in Kern at the time and, and I was running the show, it was Danny's pullovers. Cause he really did this in real life. Danny would literally drive around Las Vegas and see someone driving a car and carjack them is not an appropriate verb or phrase, but <laughs> he would he would kind of kindly force them off the road and, and buy, buy their cars or make offers on their cars, or at least passionately talk about their cars because he's that much of a fanatic. So when you hear something like that, not only are you out of the shop, I think what most car shows struggle with, regardless of which one it is, uh, and bike, bike shows, you're in a confined space because that's where the shop is. And you got to get people out of the shop. Danny had the most organic and exciting way to get out of the shop because he was picking. We called them pullovers. Danny would do these pullovers and we're like, oh my God, that's, it's unexpected because like a Pawn Stars, you never know what's going to walk in the door. Danny Coker is never knows what he's going to find on the road and he never knows who's going to be behind the wheel. He never knows if they're willing to sell it or not. It's, it's almost like a game that the audience played along with him um, that we really leaned into. So had Counting Cars just been pitched or developed or aired as a shop show, do I think it would have been as memorable? Maybe, but probably not. I, I think Danny's willingness to go out and about in an organic way because he was doing it naturally um, made that show stand out. And even though we don't do as many pullovers anymore, COVID has a ton to do with that, but Danny's so recognized now, it, it's really hard to shoot those in an organic way because they, they just feel so contrived. It, we, we are a more shop-based show, but it's, it's in its ninth year. If we, if we get renewed for another season and we're producing this next year, it'll be on for a decade, which is kind of unheard of in the car space, at least these days. So, and, and I think that all has to do with Danny. People just love his charisma and who he is on camera. You know, he, he's just a, someone you want to hang out with, someone you want to have a drink with. And they make really cool, loud designs in cars. They put horns on shit. That's not something you see every day. So I think that's why. Yeah. He's a great piece of talent. When it comes to talent at left field, whether it's, it's you or your team, do you all start your development process with talent in mind or going after talent? Or do you like to start with, oh, we've got a format that we want to build off? Is it a little bit of both? What is the process that, that you all use? The answer is both. I think years ago, and I, I mentioned this earlier, years ago, finding talent wasn't easy, but it was more frequent, I guess. You, you could find a talent and say, okay, we found a great individual a woman who does X, a man who does Y, let's figure out what the show is. That doesn't happen as frequently anymore. It's, we, we rarely get pitched or find internally a talent that we say, holy shit, we've never seen anything like this before. Not us, but other production companies find the pimple poppers of the world. And that's, that's awesome, but those are few and far between. I think we like to ideate that way, but we can't rely on that. So it's all of the above. We, we come up with formats that may or may not need talent. We come up with formats that are just formats and don't even need faces. And then you just cast participants, whether it's a game show or something like that. We really approach it every which way. You always want to take shows to market that you want to make, but sometimes you also have to take shows to market that you think will sell. And the, the baby killing is the toughest part of this job because I'll often have, you know, the, the junior and, and even senior members of, of our team pitch us, us being me and Gretchen. And 
they're, they're great ideas and stuff that we haven't necessarily heard before, but when we assess the landscape and who the buyers are right now and what they may already have on air that's, that's similar or at least fulfills a need that's similar, we, we kind of flush it or we, we, we just put it on the back burner and say, we'll revisit a month or six months from now because it, it's hard to be noticed in the marketplace too. So you kind of sometimes have to put your own personal passion projects to the side. And that doesn't mean that what we don't take out, we don't want to make and that we aren't excited about pitching. Um, but sometimes the ones that you take out first have to be the ones that you think can sell, not that you hope they'll sell because you're putting a lot of time and resources into it. You know, you, you, we've got a team that works really hard. When, when Gretchen and I took over left field, I think there were almost a hundred projects on the slate and we cut that by 75% right off the bat because yeah. in talking to the team, a lot of them were projects they just liked. Right. But then we started asking, will this project sell? And yeah. if the answer was no, or maybe we just cut it from the slate, you know? Yeah. I think that's a great point in terms of the landscape, right? And I've asked other people, it's the sniper strategy versus the machine gun strategy. It's, do you pitch a lot of shows hoping that, okay, one of them's going to sell? Or do you really spend a year developing one, packaging it, getting IP, getting talent, knowing this has, you know, a much better chance of selling? Do you prefer one or the other? Does your team operate based on that sniper strategy or that machine gun strategy? How do you guys approach it? The answer, although it may sound unsatisfying, is it depends. I, this, is, this is true. We just put together a 140-page deck that we haven't taken to market yet for a very big premium, exciting project. 140 I, pages? Would I do a 140 page deck? And granted, that includes a lot of research to prove that there's a there there beyond one episode. So we can easily omit half the deck and it's the pitch, but it's still, there's a lot to it. There's, there's a lot to it. Okay. Uh, but would we do that for every project? No. I don't know if this answers your question, but one thing that I always keep in mind before I take anything out, whether it's the machine gun or a sniper, is can we make the show? Because I think that's more important. Because I think one thing that you run into with the high volume pitching is you you may not, and it's not always the case, but you may not have developed it thoroughly enough or poked enough holes yourself to know that you can make the show. And and I was on the buying side at, at Viacom and I'm very close friends with the majority of my buying partners. And there's nothing more frustrating for them than to get excited about a project. And then even if they're going to make an offer to learn like, oh shit, you didn't actually put in the diligence to know that this is doable. And that's shitty. Um, you know, there were a number of times, and this is not a knock on any previous regime because they were doing an amazing job selling. But when I was in current at ITV and left field, Sometimes I would roll my eyes when I find out there were certain green lights because I'd be like, guys, I don't know how to make this show. How did you even sell the show? Who bought the show? There's there's different approaches to it for sure. We do both, but even if we're we're blasting stuff out quickly, it's not thoughtlessly. That makes sense. I'm very curious about your 140 page deck and I will never, no one, I will never let anyone tell me that my decks are too long anymore. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> I, I saw a, a study that 46% of U.S. broadband homes subscribe to four or more streaming services, right? So the streaming wars are now full-blown upon us right now. Do you feel like now is the landscape better than ever before? Is it the same? Are you more excited now than ever before as a seller? The only thing that's the same, in my opinion, is that we're kind of becoming cable again in terms of way too many potential destinations for content if you're a consumer. But outside of that, couldn't be more excited about the landscape. There's more buyers. And I think regardless of the quantity of buyers, though, what's refreshing and exciting on this side of the fence is that 
there aren't the parameters there used to be. There aren't the rules. There's not the playbook. There isn't, you're not starting from no. I, I think for so long, a lot of linear brands had such a clearly defined audience and type of show that they knew worked for them based on years and years of data that they didn't want, they, well, they didn't need to, but they didn't want to think outside the box. They didn't want to expand. So unless you were pitching them cookie cutter type stuff with a different talent, um, it wasn't going to get through and that's limiting and also difficult because every other production company is pitching them the same thing, the same car show or the same whatever. So I think those handcuffs have come off and ironically also with the linear nets now as well, because they're trying to keep up with, with the streamers, everybody is more open-minded and everybody's taking bigger swings. And yes, there are different price points and different different audiences to a degree, depending upon which streamer or linear net we're talking about, but it's fun. I mean, the, the, the development conversations we have with our partners now are so much more collaborative, spontaneous, um, and kind of all encompassing than they used to be. And, and in a way, I don't think this has anything to do with the pandemic. It, clearly you're, you're bonding in different ways via VC than you would have you know, on the telephone or the occasional flight to LA, but everyone seems to be having more fun developing and being creative again. I think for so long, this might sound cliche, but our, our business, our industry was getting to be too much of a business and it still is, right? Money matters, but I think what I'm seeing a lot of with our partners is they're reminded on a daily basis, like, oh shit, I work in television and that's pretty cool. Let's throw some big ideas around. They don't have to be predictable small ideas because we know with this that some part of the country likes to watch those types of shows. Now the ideas that are getting thrown around usually result in a, what the fuck, that's nuts. But then maybe we can do it as opposed to no way that's nuts. You're crazy for even pitching that. We had a former employee who's amazing, left on great terms, but he was notorious on a daily basis for pitching us the most ridiculous ideas ever. And when he left, he left us with his Bible of ridiculous ideas. I shit you not. And this was maybe five, six, five years ago, let's say. At the time, not a single one of them would ever have gotten more than a grumble from a network exec or some sort of eye roll at real screen. I've seen about 10 shows on television, fully produced airing that he came up with four or five years ago that all of us just chuckled at. And I think that's indicative of the swings people are willing to take and the fact that this industry can and should be fun. I have to ask you about your time at MTV because there's so many producers who really uh, developed some of their, their skills in their time at MTV. I had Adam Freeman on, you know, from Think Factory, um, and he talked he had some great stories from when he was working at MTV and how that really taught him so much about producing and got helped get him to where he is today. What was your experience like working at MTV and how did that help you to get where you are today? Adam Freeman was my first boss when I got my job as a PA um, on TRL. Um, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, Adam was running TRL at the time. Dave George, our now CEO, uh, was producing TRL at the time underneath Adam. And I, I was brought on as a PA 20 plus years ago, which is crazy to say out loud. MTV was wild. It, I think it was run by children, like legitimate children were running the network. The executives, of course, were older, but they had the mentality of children in all the best ways. It was a boot camp. It, Another cliche thing I'll say is, is that it, everyone got a master's degree at M MTV in a way. We were thrown into the fire at a very young age. You were given a lot of autonomy. Um, you were also required to multitask. I, I remember my interview when I, when I went to interview for the PA job at TRL, uh, Robin at the time, our, our, the line producer, asked, like, what can you do? Can you, you know, what, what, as a PA, can you cue tapes? I said, well, I was an editor in college and taught an editing class and I, I can shoot, I, I do photography, I write, I do all this shit. And it wasn't, didn't literally say this, but she said, you're hired. And it, I, I think the mentality at MTV was we need everybody to do everything because the, the budgets weren't huge and everything was done in house. So they needed everybody in house to be able to contribute in, contribute in some way. I remember all the interns from the intern class 
before I got that job loathed me because I came in from the outside. I was a ticket taker at Letterman for Christ's sake. And I came in from the outside and got the job that they all wanted just because I knew how to do more shit. So that, that's one of the, the, the best things about being at MTV was that I had to hold the camera and shoot the stuff. I had to go write cue cards. I had to produce the talent because there literally was no one else to do it. And you're 21 and you're expected not to mess it up. And if you mess it up, you're not there long. And if, if you do, then you're given more and more opportunity. And I think MTV did a great job of paying you very little, but giving you tremendous opportunity. And a lot of ways that's, that's so much more valuable at the end of the day when you're starting your career. I think also I was lucky to start off in a live environment. The good thing is in a live environment, when you, when you fuck up, it's done and no one remembers. Even when you don't fuck up, no one remembers because the show airs and then it just disappears into the atmosphere and it's never to be seen again. So that you have, you have to be a bit of a goldfish in that regard. Um, you just kind of move on, but you also have to make quick decisions. So I think if, if nothing else, my, my takeaway from my TRL years, the number one lesson learned was kill babies fast, make decisions fast. Um, you could be wrong, but that's okay and just move on. There are times when my, I, even my own development team now, I know they get frustrated with me because I make decisions too quickly. I'll, I'll, I'll yes or no ideas they have that they want to de further develop. And I'll, I'll, if I say no, it's because I just have a hunch and they want to really, really sell me on it. Um, and I've gotten better at that. I think also in brainstorms, I'm, I tend to be very quick because of my experience on TRL to yes or no things um, without really giving things a chance. And that, that's something I've had to learn in the past few years, especially in this role at left field is sometimes you need to, even if you know the answer, even if you know the answer is no, this is not an idea that is worth pursuing. Sometimes you have to pretend that it is because something else might come from it. Um, Brent even said to me once five or six years ago, we were having a very quick conversation outside of our building. There were five of us standing around. Someone asked a question and right away, I was like, no, it's not going to work. And Brent pulled me aside and he said, you're right. You're a hundred percent right, but you don't always have to be right. Um, and he said it way more articulately, articulately than Matt, but what he was getting at is sometimes you really need to let an idea be an idea. Um, you need to let people get that shit out. Um, because if you just squash it right away, because you can see three, four, five steps ahead in that particular moment, it's not helping anyone. It's not helping them learn. It's not helping you find something else good that could have come from that particular thing. So a good about MTV, quick decisions, bad about MTV, quick decisions. <laughs> um, and you just kind of learn along the way. You were at MTV at, at a time when they were so culturally relevant. You know, they, they were in the zeitgeist every day. What is your favorite memory or do you have any memory that will always stick with you from your time at MTV? What was great about TRL, and I'll, I'll make it specific to TRL, is it existed before Twitter. The internet existed, but barely. Um, I don't think Facebook was even a thing for a couple years. And celebrities especially were accessible via our show in ways that they were never accessible to anyone. And the, the, the stunts, the games, the questions that they were willing to participate in on that show, you would rarely see today. Um, and you never saw before. Um, there was something really special about that culture and that, that energy and the environment that TRL specifically, even beyond MTV as a whole, uh, um, brought to viewers and Times Square is a great example. So I don't know if you were ever an audience member or if you were in New York City or in Times Square when Tira was on, but when those blinds went up, when the police would allow us to put the blinds up, hundreds and thousands of kids would just flock to Times Square to watch our show from the outside. They couldn't hear shit. All they wanted to do was see 42 frames of Eminem walk to the window and wave. And that was life-changing for people. Yeah. We, we had, we'd have people weeping uncontrollably. We would often bring them up to the studio, but I, I can't think of a similar thing now. What is that now? And what was that before? Uh, to be part of that, to be out in Times Square as a PA and as an AP and as a producer, just muscling your way to find the, the Backstreet Boy fan or the InSync fan or whoever it is, um, and, it, and to be able to change their life in a way by getting to 
you yourself, no one cared. Like people upstairs were like, Sean, you pick somebody. So to be down there and to be able to pick up a guy or girl who wanted to meet Justin Timberlake and literally change their life um, because they were cool enough to come to Times Square and stand out there in 100 degree weather and scream at a window. That was a really, really cool environment that I'll, I'll never experience anything like that again. And, and man, it's it gives me goosebumps just thinking. I mean, Eminem shut down Times Square once because so many people came. The cops made us pull down the blinds. It, it was just a cultural thing that we'll never get back. I, I don't know that celebrities will ever make themselves that accessible again when it's not behind a Twitter or an Instagram or something like that. And that was just really special to be part of. I don't, I know that was not the, the Kid Rock crazy party stories that you want to hear. But, uh, <laughs> well, it we, is we interesting. Can those, we can save those for a non-public forum. Yes. Yeah. But it is interesting. You said that it, it, it could never happen again. And you're right. That was the only way to really get a glimpse of a celebrity on a daily basis. You knew if you turned on TRL, you'd get to hear and see a celebrity every single day. And now they don't need that. They're on Twitter, they're on Instagram, they're on TikTok or Snapchat, and they control the narrative. So, and they, they have filters, so they don't need TRL and they can pump out a new song on YouTube, a new video on YouTube every, you know, every Friday if they want. The crazy thing is no one has any idea what TRL is anymore. <laughs> like anyone over the age of 30, maybe, maybe 35, but anyone, anyone younger than that, you mention it and they just, it's just like looking at a brick. <laughs> I, I like to end the episodes with uh, some recommendations of what to watch uh, or read, whatever you prefer. Um, I recently watched uh, the Mary J. Blige documentary, My mm -hmm. Life on Amazon. If you are a hip hop fan, or just a Mary J. Blige fan, um, I highly recommend it. Um, it's definitely a unique way to do a doc. They mix animation in there, some really cool animation, and obviously the music um, and concert footage and, and uh, some archival in there uh, is, is really great and, and a unique peek into her life. And she's had such a great career, but also a tough upbringing, and so... I found it pretty fascinating, um, and, and so I highly recommend that one. Um, there's a book that I just read called Strong Men by Ruth Benjiat. Um, that it's, it's, if you like history, it's a um, kind of a, it chronicles the history of dictators and authoritarian, authoritarianism from Mussolini to the present day. Kind of a little, little serious topic, but... If you're into history, it's a it's a fascinating read. A little disturbing for our time. However, <laughs> a little disturbing for what we're all going through right now. But I highly encourage if you if you like history, if you like politics, it's a good read. Anything you're you have coming up, coming out of left field that everybody should watch. Wow, nothing that I can announce yet coming out of left field, but we do have both both are for streamers respectively, two very unique takes on the survival space that will drop end of this year one and then the other one top of next year. So it's going to be a few months, but really excited about that. And uh, we've got a really exciting competition series. that's very unexpected for us dropping on HGTV in Q4 of this year, which is also going to be a lot of fun. And my wife is going to fucking love it. So that makes me happy. Mm, okay. Uh, in terms of recommendations, I don't know how much time you have. I watch a lot of television. Um, I, I've really gotten sucked into a lot of foreign language stuff on Netflix lately. Okay. It, it's been around for years, but dark is phenomenal. I'm pretty sure it's German. Yeah. Uh, time travel-y, kids go missing. It, it's it's kind of effed up, but it, it's, it's worth the watch if you can get through the subtitles. Lupin, I think that's how you pronounce it on, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's French. A little Thomas Crown affair-y, heisty, uh, but light. It's it's not heavy. It, it's, 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 there's a lot of levity in it. Um, I think that one's pretty good. Fun moves pretty quickly. Money Heist was pretty good. Um, I love anything. This has nothing to do with foreign language, by the way. Anything Jonathan Tropper touches. Uh, Banshee Warrior C. Warrior's a great show. It, it, a lot of troubled protagonists. Um, I think a, a lot of those, not C, that was Apple, but the other two, I believe, launched on Cinemax. Um, you can probably find them on HBO Max now, but they're excellent. 
Mr. In-Between on FX is phenomenal. It's like a small scale feeling hitman type show with heart. Oh, okay. Man, it is such a phenomenal show. Ted Lasso, if you haven't watched Ted Lasso. Oh yeah, oh and, yeah. And if you need something to make you feel good about yourself and life, especially given the past year and a half, yep. you should watch Ted Lasso. That's a Barbecue great- sauce, yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, that's just, that's a great show. Um, on the reading side, Iger's book was good. I found that pretty inspirational. Um, Hidden Life of Trees, my co-president gave to me. Um, if you like natural history and humanity, it's just it's it's a sciency read, but it's a fun read. And I I just finished writing reading every single one. I think there's 15 of them of the Last Kingdom books. Um, I like anything with swords and like fairies and monsters and shit like that. So it, it was a Netflix show. No fairies or monsters, but lots of swords. I think ended up it'll end up getting cut short. I don't know that they're going to tell the entire thing on Netflix. So I bought all the books and read all the books in like three days. <laughs> but um, they're really, really good and a fun, a fun read if you like that kind of thing. Right on. All right, that's a lot. I like that. The audience now has a lot to watch and a lot to read. Sean, thank you so much for doing the podcast. I know that you've got a lot going on at Left Field, so I appreciate the time. Yeah, likewise, Steve. Sorry for my mindless rambling. thanks again to my guest sean witt now for everybody listening if you enjoy the show please subscribe download and rate it with five stars it's available on apple Podcasts, spotify google Podcasts, stitcher audible and tune in you can also find it at believe.com and at believe podcast follow me on twitter at steve berkowitz and on instagram at steve m berkowitz you can also write a question if you have one and i will answer it on the show email those questions to no script no problem podcast at gmail.com if you're interested in advertising on the show please contact believe at believe.com thanks for listening until next time i'm steve berkowitz for no script no problem thank you for listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube